0: credibility that uh, the ability to ride and so if you're taking a group of talented recreationalists who can can really move around on their sleds then the instructor needs to be able to move around this looks this looks good but eh, it's late at the end of the day let's forget it let's let's go home so i had to hike back up to the group and i get to the group and A little out of breath, and and I I just remember. And I, for some reason, as I got to within five feet of them, I said, Let's go. And I changed my mind at the last second. And I regret that. We look around and say, Everything looks good, but we could die. It could be a deep. Layer that pulls out and 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 uh, with massive consequence. This is Ian Stewart Patterson, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast.
1: You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. On today's show, Caleb talks to Ian Stewart-Patterson, who is a professor emeritus at Thompson's River University and a highly experienced IFMGA mountain guide. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by BC Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. In the conversation today, Ian discusses his unique journey as an educator who has worked extensively both in the outdoors and academia. He shares his experiences growing up in Canada and his time at Outward Bound, as well as his academic pursuits that led him to earn a PhD focused on expert decision-making. Through his insights and expertise, Ian sheds light on how we can enhance our decision-making abilities when venturing into the backcountry. And now, Caleb Merrill's interview with Ian Stewart Patterson.
2: Welcome to the show, Ian. Thanks for making the time today. How you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Where are you calling in from today?
0: I'm calling in from Squamish, British Columbia.
2: Uh, what's the weather doing out there?
0: Well, I'm I'm visiting my daughter here, and when I drove in last night, it was slashing rain, and uh, we're going to go out and spend some time outside tomorrow, and the forecast is brilliant
2: sunshine, so I'm really looking forward to that. All right. Well, I should mention we're recording this on February 13th. It's my dad's birthday today. Happy birthday, Dad. And uh, we're going to jump right in with a little bit of an introduction from Ian about who he is and some of the roles that he's held within the snow and avalanche and, and academic and research communities. Um, so Ian, I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love to start out by just hearing some of your early memories of you venturing into the backcountry. What, what set the hook for you, maybe at a, at a younger age?
0: I mean, as, as a kid, I grew up in eastern Canada. So getting out and doing the mandatory canoe tripping kind of thing was the starting point. But really where it took off for me was at age 17, I went to southern British Columbia and did a 21 day outward bound course. And so it was an expedition style course. So we were out in the mountains for 21 days straight. And that really set the hook, you know, climbing and hiking through the southern Canadian Rockies just opened my eyes.
2: And how did you what are some early memories of winter backcountry recreation? When did you start maybe backcountry skiing or ice climbing, mountaineering?
0: I mean I grew up in a ski family. My dad was a ski racer and so every family vacation was was skiing. And and so we traveled around the eastern Canada and the eastern US and and um I learned how to ski. Um but uh, really, the, where, it, where it took off for me was, was the Outward Bound course and uh, the uh, moving into uh, getting excited about um, being outside and, and the winter part of it, it came together. My, my initial interest was, was rock climbing. And then when I was 19, I moved to Calgary to go to university and got completely hooked on ice climbing. And I was fortunate that I, I worked as a volunteer instructor at Edward Bound, and I was paired up with Laurie Skreslet, who was uh, one of the foundational instrumental figures in ice climbing in, in Calgary in the, in the late 70s. And so that really got me excited about ice climbing. And uh, at the time, I didn't really realize I was ice climbing in avalanche terrain there was that level of uh of uh a little bit of uh naivety of of the avalanche hazard and then i experienced my first avalanche and, and it was on a waterfall and uh i was trying to do the first descent of a waterfall and i was certainly focused on that aspect of things and completely oblivious to the fact that this was a south facing slope with three avalanche bowls above it and it was a warm summit, warm and sunny chinooking day in the in the on the east slopes of the Rockies. And so yeah, one of the bulls above avalanched and went shooting over our heads and uh, we ran away. It was scary. <laughs> so that was my uh, I need to know more about
2: avalanches. And were you able to to take an avalanche course after that or um, what was your kind of formal avalanche education that came out of that
0: Yeah so I uh kept climbing as as my primary focus but skiing was kind of a it was a great way to get to ice climbs and then I realized actually it's kind of fun too Uh so as part I I the the um education I was engaged in at was at the University of Calgary and it was a bachelor of physical education with a major in outdoor pursuits. And so as part of the outdoor pursuits program, we had avalanche training. So it was kind of uh, similar to a little bit more than what we would consider a a two day basic avalanche course. It was a little bit more than that, but it definitely opened the doors to, there's more to learn here. and then uh, another event happened that really triggered my recognition of the need to get more training. And that was, I, I went to uh, the Himalayas to Nepal and joined a team trying to do the first descent of the South face of Daligiri one. And it's a massive 4,000 meter high face and avalanches were a huge part of that. And I got chased by a, a, a big size four avalanche. And I took my, Uh, Canadian Avalanche Association industry training program level one. The following month, as soon as I got home,
2: pretty fitting there, hey?
0: Yeah, it was uh, a recognition that as I move forward, more more avalanche education is absolutely necessary.
2: And so you're a fully certified ACMG IFMGA guide. And so, uh, what did that process look like for you? When did you start taking those courses and exams, and and uh, how did that process play out within your career?
0: You know, after doing the undergrad, I started working for Edward Bound and uh, taking people into the mountains. And any spare time was spent climbing and uh, really building that that climbing resume, both rock, ice climbing, mountaineering, high altitude, all of it. Uh, but also getting excited about skiing, backcountry skiing. And so built the resume for a while. And then at some point realized, you know, I I could actually do a guides exam. And so I signed up for both the apprentice ski guide exam and the apprentice climbing guide exam in the same year. So in five months, I did both of those back to back and uh, started to make that transition away from Outward Bound uh, and into more traditional guiding and working in the the Bow Corridor, the Bow Valley, sort of Canmore between Canmore and Calgary. And uh, so that was the starting point of, of the guiding career uh, which then got interrupted two years later when I got a an, a, an option to go into a master's program and uh, back at the University of Calgary, and it was a, a master's degree in education with a focus on curriculum design for adventure education. So, so that that interrupted uh, the guiding for a little bit. I guided on on the side, part time in the summers, kind of thing. And then went back to guiding as uh, soon as I graduated. Then the big the big step in my career was uh, in 1992. There was a job ad for a brand new adventure guide diploma program at what was then called the University College of the Caribou, and is is now called Thompson Rivers University. And so I applied for that, and I got the job. And uh, the the first Week on the job, uh, it became apparent what the challenge was going to be, and it was it was uh, the first week of June, and we had expectation to open the doors to a group of students in September, and we had no students, we had no staff, we had no equipment, we had no curriculum, we had no classroom, we had no vehicles. It all had to be built in two and a half months, and so it was a frantic two and a half months, but we got there, and we opened. September 4th with 22 students.
2: Wow, that's a pretty tall order. Um, and and so at some point you also uh, managed to complete a PhD program. Was that at at Thompson Rivers University? Yeah, so
0: there were a bunch of steps going through there. Um, after, uh, when I got hired at, at, uh, at TRU, I was a, an apprentice guide. And so I worked on uh, building my skills to complete the full guide exams after we got the program up and running. And then I uh, running the program for many years and realizing that there w- I wanted to do more. And, and the idea of doing research came into the picture. Working at a university, that's one of the expectations. And so there's people around that are doing research and know how to do that. And so I applied for a sabbatical, I got a sabbatical and wanted to look at uh, how decision making was trained at the apprentice guide level. I was starting to examine for the ACMG in the apprentice guide program. And so I was curious as to how other countries manage this. And uh, we, Canada, hosted the IFMGA technical delegates meeting in 2001, and I was one of the host guides and because I can speak French. It's my second language. I, I got teamed up with the French guides that were there and, and made some connections. And uh, they invited me to come over to France and observe, be a guest observer examiner for their apprentice winter guides program. And so that was a fascinating uh, three weeks spent uh, with the wonderful folks at, uh, at ENSA in Chamonix. And then uh, as a result of the, that, that sabbatical and, and looking at how guide training was running, I wrote a paper and I presented it at the ISSW. And that was my step into, into that world. And I realized that was pretty fun. I enjoyed that. And so two years later, I started a PhD program at the University of Edinburgh and investigated the uh, role of intuition in the expert decision process of ski guides,
2: what were some of the key key differences that you saw from the Canadian uh, apprentice guide training and and what the French were doing?
0: Yeah, it was it was fascinating, and I and I looked at uh, I also looked at the American Mountain Guides Alpine Guide Training Program and the British Mountain Leader Program, and the the French program and the, and the Canadian program were the two closest. They were both apprentice ski guide programs. Uh, So big differences were that the French program was um, the candidates had entered into the mountain guide program. So the prerequisites to get into the program were climbing and skiing. Whereas in the Canadian program, the prerequisite is a ski prerequisite. It's a ski program and some of the candidates may have Already gone into the climbing program, but it wasn't required. And so the French candidates, the level of competition to get into the program was intense. At the time, there were 750 applicants that were accepted into a a probationary exam of 150 applicants. And that probationary exam uh, got rid of 100 candidates and they a uh, 50 moved forward into the actual exam. And so the candidates were incredibly talented. Um, so that was, and in all aspects of mountain travel, uh, mm-hmm. not, not just skiing. The, the other differences were that the French exam was held in Chamonix and basically you're jumping on a ski lift every day, riding up to the Alpine and then traversing out. And so the access to terrain is incredible it's it's incredibly easy access to to get into some very serious mountain terrain. So um th- that was that was a, a big difference compared to Canada where you know many of our exams you use a helicopter to fly in and spend a week winter camping. So that was another big difference is is uh, that uh on the French exam there was one night of winter camping where on the Canadian g- exams it might be uh, a full week of time out uh, camping, so more of a more of a wilderness emphasis on the Canadian exam uh, and more of a hard technical emphasis on the french exam
2: and so at that time were you looking were you already starting to get the gears going on some of the decision making processes that guides use in the mountains when ski guiding yeah that the
0: that sabbatical was was my uh, jumping off point for investigating the decision process in a, in a more sophisticated manner. And so that was why two years later, uh, I started the PhD program.
2: Maybe you could talk a little bit about your foray into motorized use in the backcountry. Why did you start riding snowmobiles?
0: Well, it was probably the typical way that skiers get into sledding is recognizing that the snowmobile provides an incredible tool for access. And so I credit my wife with being the one who had the foresight to say, "Why don't we get a sled?" She was working at the local ski hill at Sun Peaks, and one, or one day a week she would be on a sled and said, "This would be pretty good for going ski touring." So we bought a used sled and realized that uh, you kind of, there's, there's two, two ways to, to do this. One is to buy a used sled and become a snowmobile mechanic. Uh, the other is buy a new sled and not be a mechanic. And so the first sled we bought taught us that we didn't know much about mechanics. Um, and that uh, since then, we've always bought new sleds. So that was the starting point. And so we just used it to access ski touring terrain. And then, uh, after a while realized there's this whole mountain riding component that looks kind of fun. And so bought a mountain sled and started to figure that part out. And then I was teaching for the CAA in the industry training program and had been since, since I started at TRU in 92. And, and so the uh, the ca got a grant a government grant to expand snowmobile education and so it basically funded eight spots for snowmobilers to take the level one course for over a three-year period and so it really expanded on on the the potential for the ca to offer that course and I was getting excited about sledding and I was a course leader for the level one course. And so I, I put my hand up and said, Hey, can I get in on this? And, uh, so that, uh, the first course that I got in, I just, I just volunteered to, to see how it worked. And then after that, uh, that was, t- uh, 2011 and then I've been teaching that course every year since and uh, became the course leader for it as well. And so that was my entry into, into the sledding was, was through the ski tour access and then, and then through the Avalanche Association. And now we've, we've run the level two, the industry training program level two course has run twice in the last four years. And so we're hoping to keep that going.
2: The motorized specific.
0: Yes, so with the level one, we do a group of 12 and have two instructors and everybody's on a sled in the in the level two program we don't have enough sledders to run a complete level two sled we don't have 12 folks that are at that are are ready for a level two so it's a push to get a group of six together which we we need a cohort of six because that's the ratio six to one ratio with an instructor so we've uh for the the last two courses we ran had six letters and 12 skiers. Mm. And so they would be together in the classroom and then move out into the field separately.
2: How about on the recreationist side for recreational, uh, sledders in Canada? You know, it, it seems like both in the U S and Canada in the last 10 to 12 years, motorized education has really been gaining traction. Um, when you stepped in, you know, back in 2011, what was the climate? Did you did you feel like there was adequate education and in, in appropriate courses, appropriate instruction um, for the recreational motorized user? And then how has that changed? I know that you and you and Jeremy Hankey took a hard look at it and kind of brought it to the forefront of the industry leaders in in 2016 at Breckenridge ISSW. Um, And so what, what changes have you noticed that have been made that have really taken a few good steps forward?
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, in, uh, the, in 2011 or so, the way that people became, uh, educators for public recreation courses was they needed to take their, their ITP level one. And so with a lack of sledders taking the ITP level one, but a demand from sledders to, to, to get recreational avalanche courses, it was a pretty natural fit for skiers to say, well, I'll just get on a sled and I'll teach a sled group about avalanches, um, which on the surface seems to make sense. Uh, but then when you dig deeper, it, there, there's, some, there's some hurdles or challenges to, to be able to do that. And so the skiers are really the, the skiers and the sliders are not really any different in terms of that recreational skill set. Of people are talented they're, whether they're skiing or on a sled, however they choose to ride. There's incredible talent out there that far exceeds uh, or the, the ability to, to make sound decisions in avalanche terrain. And so the question was, you know, can I ride this slope? Well, yeah, absolutely. Should I ride this slope? Well, maybe not. And so with the growth in in the number of people taking the ITP level one course created the potential for Morse letters to be qualified to teach avalanche courses. And so we saw certainly of the, the, the folks that that I've seen over the last 11 years going through the course. I would say probably at least half of them have been doing some avalanche instruction, and so it's it's one of the prime outputs for them after the course is that they are are uh, on their way to being qualified to to teach uh, avalanche courses to sledders, and so really part of the key on that is is um, you know what makes a good uh, recreational avalanche instructor for a sled group. Uh, there, there's a couple of key things and, and one is credibility that, uh, the ability to ride. And so if you're taking a group of talented recreationalists who can, can really move around on their sleds, then the instructor needs to be able to move around on, on the sled as well. Um, so that, that's a key piece of it. And then another key piece is, is, um, looking at learning styles and so i kind of look at my career as 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 an educator and think of myself as an educator and and the ability to identify and address a variety of learning styles and so if we look at the traditional model of uh course delivery then and take it any whether it's in high school or at at university it's sit and listen to somebody talk that talking head the lecture style and yet when we look at that and this is what jeremy and i looked at was that um if we look at trades training it it doesn't work that way that there's a whole variety of other tools available to get the message across and to create a learning environment that that works and so the the number one thing is is hands on that there's less talk and more action, and and that seems to be a very effective learning tool. And one of the questions that's come up, uh, I've worked with other educators and talked about this, and and what we've been thinking about is is the concept of universal design, where we create a program that works for all styles of learners. And so if we say, well, the recreational slider may not tolerate a traditional lecture style format very well, then how does that apply to other learners? How many people? Is the traditional lecture style still appropriate? And so there's some good questioning of that in terms of how can we change this? And and perhaps COVID's helped us with that too, where we've had less face-to-face lecture style events happening and more online learning and different strategies around that. So a good educator needs to be able to identify the learning need of the student and and address that. And so what I've seen with um, this this snowmobile crowd is that hands-on training works really well, that small group challenges works really well, that you challenge the group to create a solution. Uh, And so they have to work as a team and they have to count on each other and they look to each other to provide or create uh, or to fulfill different roles within that challenge. So so those are some of the key things I think about in terms of um, changing uh, adult education uh, in terms of meeting the needs of a diverse bunch of groups, whether it's a group of skiers or a group of sliders that even within a group, there may be a variety. And and, uh, we've seen that on the in the ITP program with the, with the sled groups is that it's not unusual to have one person in the group who's already an engineer or something like that, where they've they've been to university and they've got post-secondary education, but they're also a super keen slider and they want to move forward in that direction.
2: So what, what are some ways that you have progressed your skills as a, as a, you know, mountain rider, um, you know, kind of moving from Ski touring from the snowmobile to maybe leaving the skis in the garage a couple days a week. Um, What were some steps that you took to become, you know, more credible within the riding community?
0: Yeah, it's been a progress. It's been a work in progress Uh, that initially when I started teaching the ITP level one sled course, I was not a great rider. Um, But what I found was that the students on the course were incredibly helpful that they recognized I brought a level of expertise that they didn't have. And they were more than happy to help me out with my writing skills. So I kind of feel like I got riding clinics on every course. It's like, show me how to do that. And so that worked really well. And then as we uh, moved forward with that, uh, we had uh, we we ran the level one course uh, in 2015. Fifteen at Carl Cooster Mountain Park, CKMP, which is a sled guiding company in Malakwa. And a number of their staff took the course. We we based the course out of their lodge and it was incredibly powerful course and, and it went really well. And I developed a bit of a connection with the guiding staff at CKMP and that that's been ongoing. And so that's been great for me is I've been able to go out and join their guiding operation and uh, give them feedback on their guiding operation and, and their management of avalanche terrain and also get coached on my riding while doing that. And so uh, two of their guides, uh, two of their lead guides uh, did the ITP level two course uh, three years ago, four years ago. And so in helping them get prepared for that, uh, I would go out riding with them and we'd work on my riding skills and we'd work on their avalanche skills. And it was, a, it was a very mutually beneficial arrangement.
2: Oh, it sounds great. Um, yeah, I could, I could only hope for that same progression and, and those opportunities for myself as I progress my riding skills. Cause it's a steep learning curve. And, um, but man, the, the hook is set for me as well. And, and <laughs> I keep leaving my skis in my truck and just go riding and, and, almost always have a great day. And, and, you know, it's amazing how much terrain I can cover. And if the hazard is elevated, I don't even have to touch avalanche terrain to have a great day out there, at least where I'm at with my skills right now. So um, I think for me, that's been a a beautiful part of, of venturing into the motorized world is just being able to have a great day without even being tempted to touch avalanche train and and getting face shots all day, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I was curious how you approach your day a little bit differently, if you're going to be on your sled versus uh, maybe going out for a ski tour for the day, what is your tour planning process look like? Um, do you still use run lists or zone lists, or do you close specific terrain depending on the avalanche problem and distribution of that avalanche problem? Uh, lay it out for us. Yeah.
0: And and I think of it as not just a, a two part answer to this, but three. And so I'll think about laying out a ski touring day, uh, setting up a ski, a heli ski day and setting up a sled day and that the biggest difference uh, between the ski touring day and the other two is the scale of the operation. And so on a ski tour on a, on a moderate size day, I may ski up and back down the same slope. And so it's a slope scale hazard forecast on a bigger day. I may traverse over the top and down another valley. And so mountain scale kind of forecasting, whereas on a sled uh, or heli skiing, it's going to be multiple drainage scale. And so I need to be looking at my terrain management through all elevation bands. Um, And and the difference between heli skiing and ski touring is that I can choose to uh, ski within a certain zone. Like I can choose to only ski the alpine and not go through treeline. Whereas when I'm sledding, I have to access from the bottom. And so I have to get up through terrain. And so that may add a layer of complexity to the, uh, planning of a sled day is that if I'm going all the way to the Alpine, then I need to plan my transitions through all elevation bands. So really the, the biggest is in that morning meeting of, of where am I going to go? And, uh, what is the avalanche problem? Where am I going to find that problem? And so. With ski touring, it's, it's picking the, the slope that I want to go to, this, the, the mountain scale, and uh, managing the avalanche problem around that. And, and it may be thinking about the run. The run, you know, I'm going to ski this run, and then maybe that run as well. Um, with heli-skiing, it's going to be multiple runs, it might be 100 different runs, and depending on, on, on the scale of the operation. And so forecasting based uh, they're on the run list, and the run list is a great tool. For sledding, the run list doesn't work as well because sleds can go horizontal, across the slope, up the slope, down the slope. And so really what we're looking at with uh, hazard management on sledding is that we pick our zones and then identify features to avoid and or features that are key features. And and so if we think oh there's a wind slab problem and it's in the Alpine but it's only on you know northeast facing uh, pieces of terrain then I may say well this bowl is open but we avoid the left side because of well, that's where it loaded up a little bit more and so we identify parts of the zone that are no go. Um, or if we were going avalanche hunting, if we want to find the problem and and go do testing on it and dig profiles or whatever, then we might say, well, here's the place where we need to go to fill those knowledge gaps that we don't know how sensitive that wind slab is. So let's go to the places where that will be. And that adds adds to our, our knowledge base. If we're looking at recreating or You know guiding a group in an area then it's it's going to be let's make sure we're clear with folks that this piece of terrain is is no go and this piece of terrain over here is where we will play
2: Mm -hmm. talk about some of the differences of of managing a group whether you're let's just say ski tour guiding or uh riding with a group on snowmobiles
0: yeah, it's 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 uh, some really significant differences, and the the key part of it is it boils down to communication. That in a ski tour group, if we are on the up track, we're probably going to be a couple of meters apart, can stop, can have a conversation, pretty easy to communicate. If we spread out across a piece of terrain and say, okay, one at a time across this piece of terrain. We may lose that voice communication and then be dependent on a radio. Has everybody got a radio? Well, that, that's not really normal for ski touring. We might have two radios in a group, one at the front one at the back. But it's possible to use the radio to communicate and, and get people to, to, to then move. But ski touring is pretty easy to, to stop and have a face-to-face if, if people are unclear on where to go, what to do. When we when we get on the sled and we have the motor noise and the speed of travel, it the clear communication prior to moving is becomes far more crucial because as soon as somebody is moving away from you at high speed, you can't get their attention. Even if everybody has a radio, they may not hear the radio over the noise of the motor. And so stopping, helmets off, communication, clarity. And then go is a, is a key part of it and making sure it, really the best travel practice is that every every sledder has a radio and that you can talk to each other so that when you stop, shut your engine off, you can call over and clarify, OK, is this where you want me to go? Am i in the right spot. Yes. OK, go. So the communication part is, is really the, the crucial difference between managing a ski tour group and uh, managing a, a sled group. The, the other piece of it uh, is the speed of travel. And one of the things I, I notice in my own guiding is I find it much easier to stop and poke at the snow when I'm ski touring than when I'm riding my sled. That I feel more, I feel the momentum and I feel like I want to keep it going, even though it's super easy to keep going uh, or to stop and then keep going. So I'll, I, I, it's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, a lot because I, I get out riding on my sled and it's like, oh, I, I rode all day and I actually didn't stop and dig. Well, why was that? You know? And uh, I'll put it down to my lack of fitness. So when I'm ski touring, I get out of breath and I just want to stop and I want to take a break and dig a hole, whereas on my sled, maybe if I get stuck, I've already dug a hole and then I can look at the sidewall of the trench that I dug and poke at it. And so I don't actually have to stop another time and pull my shovel out and, and do a dig. So some definite differences there between, uh, managing a group uh, on the sled versus ski touring.
2: Do you ever p- pre-plan areas that are, are good regroup areas, good observation zones, um, when planning the day out with your riding partners? Like, okay, like we're going to come to this point and, and stop and, Talk about what we've been seeing, and then you know maybe dig in the snow a bit and then go play in this play zone. Um, is that useful to you and your partners?
0: You're talking honest on, a, uh, on a, with the sled group, right? Y- yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. So you know you think of I think of uh, traveling into an area and mm. trying to keep the momentum going so that we don't you know lose a lot of time in, in, that, in that transition. Um, but once we get into the terrain and can see the terrain, visualize it, then, then key moment to stop. And I, and I insist on a helmets off approach. It's like we stop and we helmets off and we talk because messages get garbled through a face mask and a helmet. And did you really hear what I said? And having that meeting point in time in the field is important. Then when we start moving through terrain we can we can have perhaps shorter stops that don't require helmets off but any crucial decision point engines off helmets off gather around and let's talk about this. Yeah, uh, because it's it's so easy to to lose part of that communication when there's extra noise or extra barriers
2: in the communication. Sure. So important to stay on the same page with your partners too, huh?
0: Yeah, if they if they if they start going, right, they're not looking at you and they hit it, hit the throttle and go. It's like, well, where are you going? I thought we were on the same page. So, yeah, it's super important to be stopping and checking in.
2: Ian, talk a little bit about what's on the horizon in Canada for certifying snowmobile guides. I know you've been um, heavily in the process of of helping to develop some curriculum, uh, much like you might uh, uh, see with the ACMG or CSGA. Um, but more geared to the snowmobile guide. So break it down for us there.
0: Yeah, so in, and I'm going to butcher the date a little bit, but around 2004, the BC Commercial Snowmobile Operators Association was formed. And it was a small group, I believe around eight companies that got together to start to address the needs of snowmobile guiding operations. And part of that was, uh, guide certification program, and so they did a lot of good work on that, but seemed to n- not get the traction within the industry, and so became somewhat inactive. And then in 2015 at TRU, we uh, in the Adventure Studies program, we identified this as a potential growth area for us as a program, and so we collaborated with. Okanagan College and the city of Revelstoke and uh, the Columbia Basin Trust and put together a package of motorized guide training and to the point of we were ready to to enact this. We had money on the table from all the funding partners and we realized that doing the cost benefit analysis was it it was going to cost too much for each participant for the potential job opportunities they would experience and the pay they would experience. So it was gonna to cost too much for not a great outcome. Um, so we, we pulled the pin on it. We never, we, never, we never pushed the go button on that program. And it's unfortunate because uh, here we are seven years later and that, that program would fly. And, and having that money on the table would, would be incredibly valuable. So uh two two years ago, more than that, Jeremy Hankey and I have been talking about Sled Guide Association and the need for it for a while, but just bouncing that idea around. And then I've also talked with Steve Scott about it, and he's the operations manager at Great Canadian in Revelstoke. And Steve started making things happen. And uh he and Curtis Pollock um, and Brianna Lutgar formed the Snowmobile Guides Association in uh in 2021 and then i connected with them in the fall and we started moving it forward and then we added four more folks uh to the board of directors there's eight of us on the board of directors and we built curriculum all last year and in april we got together for five days in Revelstoke and just hammered on that curriculum what, what does a guide really need to be able to do? How well, uh, what do they need to do and how well do they need to do it? And so that that gave us uh, a, a really good handle on uh, a curriculum. So you know, with my background, master's degree in curriculum development, it was able to you know, move it forward the way a curriculum should be moved forward. And so then we uh, invited a group of eight more lead guides, operations managers, to come and look at the curriculum. And the way I framed it was that we got together in January, end of January for five days, and that eight of us had built this thing for a year and a half and needed some other eyes on it, a second set of eyes on it. So we got eight more well-positioned folks to come in and as a group of 16, we just hammered through and got out in the field and we did the training sessions. We we had lesson plans for many most of the lessons. And so instead of me standing up and delivering the lesson, everybody had the lesson plan and we hammered through it and went, okay, what are the gaps here? Um, what needs to be added? What's missing? And so at the end of those five days, you know, we, we have, uh, a a much more sophisticated subject matter curriculum ready to roll. And so the plan is that we will run the, so we called that the beta course. And so we'll run the first actual exam in April. And so we tentatively have that set up for the middle of April and we're looking at, uh, we'll take nine people on it and, uh, the prerequisite for them will be they need to be at a lead guide level already. And so there won't be much in the way of training happening. It's more about you should already know how to do this. And let's just make sure we're all on the same page. And uh, yeah, that that will be, you know, really the the f- first stamp of certification. And so it's a it's an exciting step forward for uh a guiding association and and the great thing is you know we've gone to look for support within the adventure industry and we've got letters of support from basically everybody so uh, the the helicat canada and the acmg and the csga and 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 the caa and avalanche canada everybody sees this and says this is a really important step forward and so that's great getting that kind of support and We've made uh, invites to the the ACMG and the CSGA to to send uh, an examiner uh, to come to the April course and help us out with building that examination process and, and making sure that you know we can deliver a course exam at a, at a high standard. And so we're looking to the industry to help us build this.
2: Well, it seems like it's a it's been a long time coming and a much needed. Uh, curriculum and, and process within the industry you mentioned this first course in april an exam will be uh you know qualified lead guides are those lead guide qualifications industry-wide or operation to operation is there is is there a across the board canadian lead you know snowmobile lead guide qualification list or how does that work
0: it's it's more uh, who's doing the job at this point and yeah. so the uh certification process that we are putting forward has three levels the trail guide which is doing the cabin tour on groom trail and then the apprentice guide or assistant guide and then the full guide or lead guide and so there are many there's there's uh I don't have the current number on my fingertips, but in 2016, when I did a review of guiding operations, there were 14 guiding operations that had legal tenures in British Columbia, and about 30 that uh, had website presences that that existed as guiding operations. So some of those operations were, were one person shows. It's one person, they're doing a pretty small amount of guiding, uh, but they have a web presence and, and they're doing it. Uh, other operations are are large, and so take Toby Creek Adventures, which has been around for uh, many years. is probably the one of the the first uh, sled guiding companies uh, to offer mountain sledding, uh, based out of Invermere. And uh, they'll have they'll they'll put forty or fifty sleds on the hill on a given day, and so. Uh, there, there's some big operators that are that are doing stuff, and so the folks that we're looking at are the folks who are already out there working for those companies and in a lead guide or operations manager role.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're certainly excited that this is happening, and and is there any collaboration across the border with with the U.S.
0: Certainly, uh, the, the uh, communication uh, corridor is open and uh, we are most uh, certainly open to working with folks in the States. And, you know, initially we thought, well, should we make this a North American guide certification? And then realize that, that that's an even much bigger giant step to do uh, and probably better to, to start with one country and figure out the complexities of working with land managers and, and all and insurance companies and on all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then, you know, once we get this built uh, or as we are building it, we're certainly open to collaboration with uh, with uh, folks across the border and hope that we can build those relationships and keep keep those going forward. And then, you know, if, if we are able to build something that works, certainly happy to to share
2: yeah well we'll just we'll let you figure it out and then we'll just jump on the bandwagon how about that (laughs) yeah yeah um well ian i'm hoping to i i I think we could stay on this topic for a while here but i'm I'm hoping to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the research that you and others have done on kind of a, a pressure bulb depth of a pressure bulb from a snow machine in different maneuvers on deeper persistent weak layers within the snowpack. Um, I was hoping you could maybe dive into that a little bit, some of the findings from your research uh, uh, within that study.
0: Yeah, and and uh, where it came from was teaching the ITP Level 1 course for sliders and showing them uh, Scott Thumwart's video that he produced as, as part of his PhD, which is a really great video uh and he did groundbreaking work with that and so i showed it to the 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 groups over the years each year i'd show it and i started getting comments of this is good but wait there's more and so i started investing okay what's the more what's the missing what's the next step and and the next step was um uh, changing maneuvers doing more complex maneuvers that that creates more stress on the snowpack and so I talked with Scott about it, and I talked with Thomas Exner, who worked with Scott on the initial uh part of the pressure bulb study, and and Thomas was keen to join us. And so Thomas and Jeremy Hankey and I. And then how, how I found Hanky was I, I I started looking at who who's doing sled research, and his research popped up, and so contacted him, and the three of us got together and uh started working on this pressure bulb study of of looking at more advanced maneuvers and the impact of those maneuvers and realized that uh straight running uphill which is what Scott looked at produced a certain amount of pressure but you can do more and and what what we found was that the full throttle uphill climb and the downhill carving turn were the two maneuvers that produced the greatest stress on the snowpack and Part of the way we measured that was by looking at the depth of penetration of the sled into the snow. And so we found that those two maneuvers bracketed foot penetration. And, and talking about a snowpack that is a, is a a classic right side up snowpack where you start with fist density on the top and then it gradually gets stiffer. And so it's a, it's a really easy measure then to say, well, track pan is about the same as foot pen. And so, if you want to then measure the stress, uh, what does that mean? And so you know this the 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 initial studies we did with the uh, with the pressure bulb measuring apparatus uh gave us certain indications. and then now we're looking at well what is what does that mean in terms of can we Okay, so a stress, the, the sled stresses the slope more. And, 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 and just by doing a static measurement of pounds per square inch, measuring the, the footprint of a sled and the weight of a sled compared to a skier, it's three to three and a half times the, the PSI. So just statically, it's three times the load. So then if we do a, an uphill climb, and uh, with, with Thomas and Jeremy, we found it was more like five times the the load and then we thought about well where are we applying that load well it's because it's deeper into the snowpack and so what that means then is is that when we have a persistent weak layer that's buried a me- roughly a meter deep that our traditional snowpack tests like the compression test or the extended column test that's at the upper limit of what those tests are, are viable for. That, that typically you're, when you're hitting on the surface of the snow with your shovel, um, the, the, I mean, the, the standard protocol for, for a compression test is you only cut the block a meter 20. And that in the extended column test, it's a meter. And so what happens when you have a persistent weak layer that's at a meter 25? and you look at no results in the compression test, extended column test, and then you look at skier triggering, and you might see that nobody's triggering it, that that, we, that persistent weak layer is deep now, and it's we're not triggering it except in very isolated places where it's a thinner snowpack. Well, a thinner snowpack would be the same as removing some of the snow on top. And so if the sled is creating a thinner snowpack everywhere it goes, maybe there's potential to trigger. And so when we look at a persistent weak layer that's a meter to a meter 50, and we're not getting skier triggering, and we're not getting results in traditional snowpack tests, what could we do that relates to sled triggering? If the sled's putting considerably more load on the snowpack, can we have a shovel test that mimics this? and so we've been working on a modified extended column test and that's our, our, our what we're working on this winter and what we do is measure the track penetration or the sled penetration the foot penetration because it's going to be about the same and remove that from under the shovel on the extended column test leave the rest of the 60 centimeters uh, across the block so it's know, the 30, 30 by 30 column that's removed to the depth of the track pin and then do the same set of hits and um, see what kind of results we get with that. We are uh, working on collecting uh, evidence that relates to sled triggering at this as part of this. And And the challenge is that we're talking about releases that are a meter deep and so I don't want anybody to go out and try and trigger an avalanche a meter deep so that I can do a shovel test because that's going to be a big avalanche. And so we are looking for avalanches that get triggered by people out riding and then going out and collecting data at or near those um, avalanche sites. So that's, that's the plan for this winter. That the, um, you know, sled triggering and the the measure the 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 uh, tests that that uh Thomas and Jeremy and I did um, on the pressure bulb, we used two maneuvers that were measurable and recognized that uh other maneuverable, uh, other maneuvers may produce more stress, but would be very difficult to actually measure um, the stress bulb. And in the last three years, I'll say. The the maneuver that has become incredibly popular is the bow tie, which, in my mind, probably produces more stress than anything else. And so, when I think about uh, the 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 evolution of the sled again, where an 850 turbo with a short tunnel and no uh, no flap on it can dig the entire length of the track down into the snow, uh, as as the person does a bow tie, it's it's far, far deeper penetration of that stress bulb into the snowpack, So potential to tickle uh, a weak layer that's even deeper. And, and so certainly in, in Western Canada, we've got persistent weak layers from November that are, they're still there. And, uh, it's a matter of when are they going to wake up? What's, what's it going to take?
2: And maybe this is a very novice question, but does track length matter? Does track length have anything to do with this?
0: Um, potentially a a bit, but, um, certainly the short tracks, the 154 turbos, uh, are wheelie machines. And so pretty easy to stand them up and dig them in. Mm -hmm. And so does it really matter with, uh, if you had a 175, I think, well, um, theoretically, if you perform the correct maneuver, you could dig that even deeper just because the track is longer
2: sure yeah
0: but well, i think the reality is that the the 154 tracks are are plenty long enough to dig down to those persistent weak layers
2: yeah well that's really cool stuff ian and and thanks for you and your your other partners for doing that research uh uh it's pretty pretty cool to see that being done um i was hoping we could talk briefly about some of the research that you've done on on guide and expert decision-making in avalanche terrain, um, a little bit more focused on on ski guides, perhaps, especially heli ski guides. Um, but there was a great interview that you did with Bruce Jameson a little bit over a year ago that I'll add a link to in the show notes that everybody should watch. But I was hoping you could just kind of break down uh, the role that intuition plays in expert decision-making and, and some other ways that we tend to make decisions such as recognized, recognition-primed decision-making. Um, give us a bit a bit of an overview there, and then maybe people can dig in a little bit further on their own.
0: Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll credit and reference the, the group that helped me with this is there were 30 and snowcat guides that worked with me for two seasons to collect the data on this and and a fairly consistent result uh, was that they used their intuition on a regular basis and then upon analysis was that their intuition was not trained there was no formal training program to help build better intuition that the training program uh the decision process that is uh, within the professional training programs in, in Canada certainly is highly emphasizes an analytical decision process. And so there was a disconnect between how we train our Avalanche professionals and then how they actually do their job. And so that was one of the key outcomes is what can we do to, to train a decision process, an intuitive decision process. And so one of the, the considerations is that how do we measure expertise? Like, what is an expert and how do we measure that? And the typical or traditional definition we use is, is, you know, how good are you? And it's, well, I've been doing this for 10 years. I have 10 years of experience. Well, that's not what I asked. I asked how good you are. And, and, and experience being different from expertise. That if we think of a, a classic uh, weekend warrior who has been doing it for 20 years, but doing it poorly for 20 years has just reinforced those poor habits over the 20 year period. And so they may have 20 years of experience, but they're still not very good. Whereas somebody who has deliberately built their expertise um, may, may only have five years or six years or seven years of, of, of expertise based on their experience. And so I, I think of experience is, is what happened to me. And then expertise is, what did, what, what did I learn from what happened to me? And there, there's a reflective component in that. Uh, but there's also a huge feedback component. Do, do, did I get any feedback on what I did? And it's, it's the, perhaps the biggest challenge within the avalanche industry is that we don't get good feedback from the environment on a regular basis. And so we can go out and ride terrain, whether we're skiing or sledding, it doesn't matter. Uh, we can ride terrain, and uh, nothing bad happens. We can ride steep stuff, and nothing bad happens. And we come back at the end of the day and go, you know what? I'm really good because we rode some sick stuff, and uh, it was awesome. So there's a flaw in that in that process, and and the challenge is that uh, we we compare uh decision competence to decision outcome if the outcome was good then you must be good and 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 that's the flaw so uh when we when we think about building expertise there's a it's a dedicated deliberate practice model and so i look and identify the gaps and i learn from what happens and so it's a deliberate process to develop expertise it doesn't just happen one of the terms that's been being thrown around is the the wicked environment that that the avalanche game is is done in a wicked environment and it 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 comes from uh a researcher named uh, robin hogarth uh who who termed it and wicked environment was was only one of the environments he talked about and and he was comparing the uh feedback the quality of feedback with the consequence And when you put those on a grid and compare them, you end up with a kind environment that has high feedback and low consequence. And at the far end of the scale, you have the wicked, which is low feedback and high consequence. But there's two other boxes as well. There's deceptive, which is low feedback, low consequence, and demanding, which is high feedback and high consequence. And we can, I'm sure all of us think of days we've been out there where it was demanding. It was high consequence, and but high feedback. You step on a roll and it pops and it goes. And you think, okay, well, things are really touchy and uh, it's really spicy out here. Let's be careful. We're getting good feedback. Uh, but if we're wrong, it's going to be really bad. And so that's not a wicked environment. That's a high feedback environment. And so the wicked environment is the one that Seems to play the most uh, because it's the most uh, dramatic. Because we look around and say everything looks good, but we could die. It could be a deep layer that pulls out and 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 uh, with massive consequence. So when we're dealing with this wicked environment, and and uh, in some ways this season in Western Canada has turned into that with with a number of persistent weak layers that that we've been managing. And so uh there's been some discussion amongst in the sort of professional circles of of when was it this bad when was the last time it was like this and in some ways it has uh, been uh compared to 2003 when we had the two massive avalanches um with the Strathcona group and 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 the and the school kids and and that winter redefined avalanche hazard forecasting in Canada so it was, a, it, you know, it was a major year. And if say, okay, well, is this year like 2003? And from looking at snowpack depths in Rogers Pass at Fidelity, uh, in January, the depths this year were around a meter 50. And in 2003, they were a meter 50. So pretty similar, low snow. And, and then last year, at the same time, it was over 340. Centimeters. So, you no, know, less than half of what we had last year. So, low snowpack, early season challenge. Um, but then 1993 was also a similar year. It had the same kind of snowpack depths, depths at fidelity. And so, the difference is that in 2003, it was a rain crust with facets. Whereas this year and in 1993, it was just early season facets, and so with no rain crust associated with it. So we might say that the nearest neighbor is 1993, and so how many of us were managing an avalanche hazard in 1993, and what can we remember about 1993? And so when we think of pattern recognition, and then this this goes sort of starts talking about the recognition primed is it goes to pattern recognition. And so if I, the the, the question is, have I seen this before? And we're saying, okay, it's a low snowpack year and we have basal facets and there's a persistent weak layer. Um, Have I seen this before? Yeah. 93. I remember sort of. And then the next question is, well, that was a while ago. Do you remember what you did? How did you manage it? How did you manage the terrain? I said, well, uh, I don't know, but I made it. And so it's a low frequency event. And if we don't deal with a challenge very often, we're not very good at it. And so we're dealing with something that has high consequence. It has low feedback. It has low frequency. I haven't done this very often. And it has low probability. So how good am I going to be with this? And it's, uh, you know, the, the likelihood that I can make a really good decision around this. I'm kidding myself. If I think I've got this now, if I've got this dialed that, um, if I, if I go out there and think, yeah, I, I, I can figure this out. I got this. I'm kidding myself because it's, um, It's an environment that I'm not well versed in. So all my other expertise doesn't fit here because the pattern doesn't fit. It doesn't work for me. It's I don't have a match, so I need to do more analysis. And this is where the intuition and the analysis goes, is that if I if my intuitive response in a in this situation is go for it, I'm going to be wrong because my intuition was not refined enough to make that kind of uh, conclusion. Um, so, but when I think about the consequence, and this was another piece that came out of the the, uh, the, the study, the PhD study, was I was gathering data in 2009-2010, which was a year plagued by four persistent weak layers, mostly surface or layers, three persist, three surface or layers in the upper prac. And uh, one of the comments that, it came through from a a number of the participants was that when they're dealing with a low probability high consequence event and they're thinking they're they're actually not very good at it because they don't deal with it as often um, that they defer to the more conservative option and that um, you know they haven't dealt with it often enough and so instead of trying to outthink the avalanche, it's just play the conservative terrain card and, and move around it. And so, you know, I think of that from a sledding context where you can have a great, as you said, you can have a great day sledding in the meadows and get powder in your face all day long. And so there's no real uh, drive there or, or need to be up in high, steep terrain, trying to, to outsmart the avalanche.
2: Certainly a much more comfortable operating plan when that level of uncertainty is that much higher, huh? You can, you can kind of go home and say, hey, yeah, we did, we did make good decisions. That We didn't just rely on luck with this uncertainty.
0: Yeah, and th- th- there's another key outcome here, a piece of this, is if the environmental feedback is lacking, where else can we get feedback? And the answer is from our peers. And that, that relies on communication and thinking of the context of, of a, of a, a ski guiding perspective is that, you know, a heli-ski company might have two or three or four groups operating out of the same helicopter. And so a guide leading each group. And sometimes those guides are choosing their own lines that, that, you know, the, you look at the run list and that line is green. Well, we'll go ski that um, depending on how, you know, how the lead guide works that group. And so if I ski a line and you look at it and go, Ooh, that looks a little bold. Are you going to call me out on it? And I might be your lead guide and you go, well, actually you don't want to ski it. You don't, you don't like the look of it. And so if you don't call me out, the reasons might be professional courtesy that you respect my skills and ability and you respect that perhaps I saw something over there that you didn't see. And so I made a decision that was in line with the, uh, with the risk threshold of the day. And if you do that, if you don't call me out, then you do me a disservice because I thought it was a good idea at the time based on the environmental feedback. But if you saw something that perhaps led to more caution and let it slide, then I lose out on your perspective. Whereas if you call me out and say, well, that seemed a little bold, then that opens the door to discussion. But that level of professional interaction requires some pre-planning. Because if at the end of the day you call me out and say, you're an idiot, what were you thinking? I'm going to be somewhat defensive. Whereas if we've set it up beforehand saying, you know, we're going to give each other feedback, peer-based feedback on our root finding decisions at the end of the day, then I'm asking you, what did you think of that line I skied? And you can reply, well, I thought it was a little bold. And so setting, pre-planning and setting up uh, the the concept of of peer-based feedback can be an incredibly powerful tool within a professional environment. And it can happen recreationally too. If you're out with a bunch of friends, um, certainly maybe even more so with a bunch of friends, maybe with folks who joined your group that you're, is friend of a friend. And, and they, they hop on a, you know, go over a convex roll that you go, ooh, that was, glad that wasn't me. Um, so the feedback, the lack of feedback can be overcome by talking with each other and and using the collective expertise and wisdom within the group
2: certainly talks to the speaks to the importance of debriefing in a recreational context and and the evening guide meeting in a operational more of an operational context hey um yeah i really appreciate those those thoughts and and the research that you've done on that and and uh i i think it's important to tap into the collective knowledge and wisdom within the, especially the professional guiding group. Um, yeah, super important. Ian, we're we're running a bit short on time here, but I was hoping that you could perhaps share a story of a close call or a accident or a, a pivotal moment in your career that kind of changed the way that you operate in the mountains.
0: Yeah. Um... there's one particular heli-ski guide day that sticks out for me. And I was the lead guide for a small operation using an A-star. And so we had three groups running, three groups, four guests, each with a guide. And it was a day ski operation. So we had one group that only skied four runs. We had a second group that skied six runs. And then as the lead guide, I stayed out with my group because they wanted more. And so we skied... Every run on the list in the area we were in, and we had forty five minutes left and they It was one of those days sunshine, powder, great group, talented skiers, like everything's great and so before flying home, I talk with them and say so we got we got enough time for one more run. Do you want one more and they're they're just, yeah, absolutely so i'm running out of options because there's one run left we haven't skied and I've never skied it. And so I've got uncertainty in my mind. I'm not quite sure where this run goes. So I get in the machine, talk to the pilot and say, yeah. And I check with him on the timing. He goes, yeah, we've got 45 minutes. We can do one more. And so I ask him about this run and he goes, oh, well, let's go fly. Have a look. If you don't like it, we'll fly home. Okay, good. So we go fly the run and he says, okay, well, I'm going to drop you off there on the ridge, and then I can pick you up halfway down in the big meadow, or I can pick you up right down at the bottom of the avalanche path. And I kind of look at it and go, okay, well, top, run will per- top half will be great, maybe the bottom. And so we, he lets us out, and he shuts the machine down at the ridge crest because we're out of radio contact. We're in a radio shadow at that point. We can't hit the base repeater. So he's my repeater so we we ski the upper half and it's it's great and then i poke to the edge the rollover on the second the bottom part and it's good deep powder and it's steep it's steeper than what we were on and i'm thinking ooh, this looks this looks good but yeah it's late at the end of the day let forget it let's let's go home so i had to hike back up to the group and i get to the group and i had a little out of breath and i and i and i just remember and i for some reason as I got to within, you know, five feet of them, I said, let's go. And I changed my mind at the last second. And I regret that. Uh, um, you know, it would, it should have been, I should have reached for my radio and I should have gone, come and pick us up. It would have been the end, the perfect end to the perfect day. As it was, we went down over the roll and it was steep and it was tight trees, but the powder was the best of the day. Um, and what I had failed to recognize is one of the guests was tired and wasn't voicing that and wasn't vocal about being tired and fell down and then got more tired and fell down again and got more tired. And, uh, so it started to take longer and the pilot calls me and says, are you ready? Are you ready for the pickup? And like, yeah, no, I need another five minutes. And he's like, well, you, you don't have five minutes. And so he came down. And he got to the pickup and realized that the pickup was actually not flat and he couldn't set down. He had to hold power. So now I've got a machine a couple hundred feet below me holding power that I have to get down to with a really tired skier. And managed it all, got down there, loaded the machine, got back. Everything, everybody was fine. But we were after official shutdown. We got back to base and he got, he got, uh, got a few words from his lead pilot and I got a few words from my operations manager. And it was like, we didn't need to be there. And, and the, the, the big lesson for me was I, I had a perfect day going and I, and I let it get out of, out of control. And I fell into that massive trap of going exploring at the end of the day. Why did I do that? And I reflect on this and go, why did I, I I know this stuff. How did I become a, a, a victim of my own thinking of, how did I let that get get away from me? And so I reflect on that a lot and say, well, even when things are going well, how do the wheels fall off? And and trying to stay that one step ahead of the game of of uh, anticipating the failure or finding anticipating the failure points and, and identifying that before it happens. So that was my end of my perfect day.
2: Oh, that's a great story. Thanks, Ian. Um, I could, I could see myself doing the same thing and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a good lesson for all of us to start ratcheting it back at the, at, towards the end of the day, huh? No more stepping it out at, when, uh, pumpkin time's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ian, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing, um, a lot of different topics that, that have your gears going and, and, uh, appreciate all the work that you've done for the industry, both the motorized and the, the ski guiding industry. Um, and hope to tie in with you out in the field sometime, get some turns in on a machine or skis.
0: Well, you just got to remember a machine has skis. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you very much.
2: Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah. I hope you continue to have a great winter up there and, and, uh, stay safe and keep having fun. Great.
0: Thank you. And you too.
2: Cheers. Bye. bye.
1: What an insightful conversation with Caleb and Ian. We truly appreciate you tuning into this episode. Today's music features awaits and spring sun by the talented Ketza, which can be found at Ketza.uk. Our show artwork done by the incredible Mike T can be found at MikeT.com. T is spelled like the drink, not the shirt. And of course, this episode was produced by yours truly, Cameron Griffin. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and recommending us to your friends on their preferred podcast platforms. You can also follow us on social media at The Avalanche Hour Podcast, and feel free to to send us any feedback or suggestions at podcast at gmail.com. The upcoming episode will feature Kate Coons joined by guest host Sean Zimmerman-Wall as they discuss Kate's adventure in Antarctica. Kate will also share her insights on the importance of self-care and getting enough rest, especially during the busy season. Until then, remember to always keep your head on a swivel for moving snow.